five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. on the internet well if that didn't get your blood going i don't know what would the great mark ii deep purple it's the theme here look at the title of the show i had to find something uh musically sonically that would match the subject matter so going through like fire songs and burn songs in my head, burned by Deep Purple went right to the top. Surpassing even Light My Fire by The Doors, Disco Inferno by The Tramps. Unforgettable Fire, you too. Burn. And that was a kind of a cool video. That was the studio version of Burned that was transposed onto um, a lot of the footage from the California Jam Music Festival, which had, if my memory serves me right, Deep Purple, Emerson Lake and Palmer, Rare Earth, Earth, Wind and Fire, Black Oak, Arkansas. Those are the, those are the bands that jump out at me. And they, they they played California Jam on in concert on ABC. I was very intrigued by Earth, Wind, and Fire. That was before they got all kind of, you know, kind of yachty and bouncy and soulful. They were like this really interesting kind of psychedelic soul funk space rock band and then they tightened everything up and started cranking out the hits um i think the mark ii version of deep purple is the best i like ian gillen a little bit more than david coverdale even though david coverdale and i share the same birthday i gotta give him props for that but uh it's also interesting, too. I was thinking about this band, and you know they're known for that song and also Smoke on the Water, which is um, their experience of being uh, at uh, Montreux Music Festival. And there was this uh, fire that broke out at the Grand Hotel um, where the bands were playing and the famous line from the song was uh, Frank Zappa and the mothers were at the best place around when some stupid with a flare gun 
burned the place to the ground. So they actually wrote about that song, created that song after uh, they were at that music festival. So there's interesting like fire imagery that, that follows uh, Deep Purple. One of their albums was called Fireball. And I was just thinking about like the evocation of that energy, right? Like, like the sonic ritual of summoning fire and bringing this entity into the world, like burn. And it's a really interesting transposition. When you listen to their music, I mean, you can hear like some of the, the Baroque stylings in there, you know, some of the time changes, right? So they're, they're kind of, based in this European classical tradition and, you know, pounding out this heavy duty bottom end and uh, these scorching guitar solos and, and uh, riffs and the asshole, Richie Blackmore guitar. He was a total asshole, probably still is. Um, and the very underrated John Lord on keyboard. I always love John Lord's keyboards. You know, he kept it, John Lord kind of kept it real. He kept it real. He didn't go off into like crazy Rick Wakeman. And I like Rick Wakeman, but you know, Rick Wakeman was going off into uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth and uh, the Knights of the Round Table. Like he was really going off into mythical spaces, right? Or Keith Emerson, Emerson Lake and Palmer, they were at, uh, did I say that? They were at California Jam. And Keith Emerson and, you know, his synthesizer and crazy keyboard pyrotechnics and going in the air and spinning around on his keyboard when he was playing, right? Lord kept it pretty clean, pretty straight, and just uh, jammed on the organ. I always appreciated that. But I thought about this, right? It's like, here they are, they're, they're bringing this kind of European, semi-classical, kind of Baroque time signatures, very Western. And then they're, they're like dumping this molten metal on top of it. And it's almost like they're, in some ways, like summoning the, the fires to burn the West. And, I'm, and I know it's a stretch, but based on today's, topic maybe not so much maybe not so much the other thing that's interesting about that video is the fact that there's a rainbow in the background <laughs> and it's like hey it's when the rainbow meant something a little different than it does today because i guarantee you if the rainbow meant what it means today that would not have been the backdrop at california jam no. So we got a lot of uh, territory to cover. And that was a kind of a long song. I don't really, I try to keep the songs four minutes or less to give us more time to toss some things around. But I made an exception today because I wanted to play that song. All right. Let me, uh, let me talk a little true hem science. Let me get into Chat Taria, see how you guys are doing. 
and then uh, I'll light the fuse on this mother. You have been trying to swear less. I think there's been a conscious and semi-conscious attempt on my part to swear less. And I had a really interesting experience yesterday. Shout out to Sherlyn. Um, so Sherlyn and her son have been watching the show for a long time. Her son, who's quite young, has grown up with the show. And he absolutely adores Jasper. Shout out to Connell. And um, anyway, I was I I was talking with Sherlyn and Connell yesterday. And Connell <laughs> Connell told Sherlyn <laughs> that she should send me a bar of soap for Christmas. So I could wash out my mouth. And and apparently it was a reference to my uh generous use of the f-bomb and i've been i've been consciously aware of not f-bombing as much and semi-conscious too right because i would i would sort of reflect well i haven't dropped a good f-bomb lately and i'm okay with that because i realize i you know here's a young young person who's listening to my show and i have responsibility to either you know plant positive seeds or negative seeds so i'm choosing to plant more positive seeds even though the occasional f-bomb does kind of keep it real do you like the background the poppies the poppies of the field i wanted something beautiful today i want something colorful and beautiful something that reminds us of the natural world and all of its temporal splendor. All right, let's talk a little true hemp science. True hemp science. Oh, I'll allow my cookies, Chris. Mother Earth is our CEO. And uh, where does that put us? She's the CEO. Mother Earth is the CEO. What are we? Are we on the board? I hope we're on the board. Sitting right next to Mother Earth. Okay. What do you want to do? Well, I want to make the best CBD oil that I could possibly make for you, Mother Earth. Granted. And that's what Chris's mission is. Uh, again, last night, I had one of the thousand milligram gummies last night and thought to myself i'm gonna take half and that's what i did i took half and i'm glad i took half because that half was enough for me and um part of my ritual i wake up with the moon dust i go to sleep with the gummies and then i supplement a little bit with the 19 but there are plenty of other options for you to get into cbd and find the one that's right and that works for you. So if you want to go to truehempscience.com forward slash ref forward slash 23, get $100 worth of product and you'll get some free goodies. And Chris is very generous and creative with the uh, 
with the goodie bag. And um, $150 more gets you free shipping. All you got to do is drop in 15MINS when you check out. That ensures you get the free goodies. And uh, we complete the circle of life and the circle of holistic transactions. So let's get into today's show. Where's my peoples? Let's see, where are we? Let me refresh this. There we go. Okay. Okay. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, my queen. DJMC. Miguel. Oh, Kelly B is here early. It's you, Kelly. Good morning. Double K, Catherine Kramer. Catherine Kramer, Capricorn. Kabuki Theater. Hello, Bo. Good to see you. E, a.k.a. Elizabeth. Hey, y'all back. TJ, my man, Thomas. There she is, the fantastic one. CC Jones. Hucklebuck 411. SP Dimples. London, Carly. JJ. JJ. What's happening, JJ? Good to see you. Um, Sony. Sony doing a name call, name check. What's going on, Sony? Hope you're doing well. There's my man, Steve. Bringing the thunder. Thor at the door. Kabuki Theater. This weekend, I found an Indian well in my new property in the U.S. Wow, good find. Excellent. There she is, big cat lady. Julie Sunshine, triple three. Uh, meow, meow. Woof, woof. Who else do we have? This has to be rainbow. Uh, it's deep purple. Lots of meat and grease today in Chantari. I love it. Sea Pines is here. Hello, Sea Pines. Deep Purple never really got the recognition. They were big in Japan. Very big in Japan. They were big in England, too. Very big in England. Even um, the pre-machine had records. Uh, in Rock and Fireball charted really high in England. Miss Nakia, what's happening? Uh, let's see. Katie. Hi, Katie. This song sends me backwards, flying backwards through the decades. I'm listening outside my big brother's door, and I am touched in my young heart. How good the harmony. Man, Gilly could sing. He could sing. Um, they found him to be their answer to uh, Robert Plant. Ian Gilliam was Deep Purple's Robert Plant. Janine, what's happening, Janine? Welcome to the show. Oh, it did. All right, got the blood good. We want to get the blood going. Move it, move it. Wow, that music woke me right up. <laughs> Long hair is back. It is coming. I had a really interesting conversation with uh, Sam, who lives in Asheville on Facebook, and we were talking about long hair and his long hair. Rare Earth. Rare Earth were really good. I think they, I'm not mistaken, weren't they the only white boys signed to Motown? 
I think they were. Rare Earth is, you know what's interesting? I just made this connection now. I just made this connection. You have a drummer in Rare Earth who's the singer from Michigan. You have the drummer from um, Grand Funk who's the singer from Michigan. And then you have the drummer from the Romantics Kind of an underrated group, also from Michigan. So if you want to play the drums and sing, go to Michigan. Although Don Henley is a drummer and sang, and he's from Texas. Let's see who else we have. I mean, so much internet issue. I'm hey, me too, Kelly. Over on the um, Astro Weather, it was it was off and on, literally. Yeah, poppies, poppies of the field. Hey, Mark M. Bring a little Piscean cool. Oh, oh, God. Sorry about that. People have to call. Bring a little Piscean cool to our, uh, to our little, uh, little event here. Love deep purple, anything black, black, Blackmore. Blackmore is a trip. He's not a nice person. <laughs> he is not. An, he is unapologetically Richie Blackmore. He's an Aries. Unapologetically Richie Blackmore. Who, who was it? Was it Eddie Van Halen that came backstage one time to like give him his props? And, and I think Blackmore knew who he was. And he just blew him off. <laughs> he just blew him off. It's like, yeah, great kid. Here, hold my beer. <laughs> uh, let's see. Who else do we have? Is Johnny here? Yeah, boy. What's happening, Johnny? Good to see you. Mercury's almost out of retrograde. Woo. What else do we have here? Uh, Nicholas Grimm. What's happening, Nicholas? Driving to work. What a great day. Stay safe out there. Let's see who else we have. Uh, Beth Berry. Don't want to glance over Beth. The low key one has joined us. Uh, let's see. Levon Helm is a drummer, but he is not from Michigan. I think he's from, what is it, Alabama or Arkansas? He's from the South. I love Levon Helm, by the way. I loved his voice. I love the band. The band were great. I mean, everybody in the group could sing, some better than others. But, man, they were so good. Detroit Rocks. There she is. Christine, one of our resident Geminis, who thinks that I have uh, it out for I don't I love Christine uh, D Tiffer hello D Tiffer good to see you how should I push the agitation envelope but stay endearing and good humor this morning definite Sagittarius moon energy this morning I don't know you'll find a way 
Look at that, Johnny dropping some Husker Du knowledge. Husker Du as a drummer, singer, also from Michigan. There we go. Yeah, it's at the uh, anoretic. It's not quite anoretic. It's at 28 degrees or 27 degrees this morning. It's right there at the end. Okay. Let's see. Let's get into today's show. Now, I was going to do a completely different show today. Um, and I, and I, I still may do that show, but not, not today. And I was going to do like about a three or four part series. Sometimes I do those. And I was going to do about a three or four part series on like the roots of um, chaos magic. Um, and psychotronics and techno anarchy that comes out of the Bay area. It's a very, there's a very interesting set of characters and movements that emerge out of San Francisco, Silicon Valley, Marin County and the East Bay. And I think I'm still going to do it. Um, but I don't think today is the day. I got something else planned. And I just, uh, I just had this up here and I had to, I had to essentially um, reboot my computer because of the internet stuff. All right. So let me set the stage for you. Back in the nineties, from 97 to 99, I lived in a warehouse in Berkeley, North Berkeley. And it was a uh, real warehouse. It wasn't a kind of a fancy artist live workspace. It was an actual working warehouse. And I kind of inserted myself there because I didn't really have um, at that time, a place to live. I mean, I spent most of the nineties. In fact, I can say, um, from 1992 to October, well, we could even move it forward from 1992 to the end of 1999. I did not pay any rent. So I managed to live seven years rent-free. Four of those years, almost five, from 92 to uh, 96, I managed an apartment building in on the, on the fringe, on the interzone of East Oakland. And uh, not paying rent was part of my deal. And then, uh, 96, I moved around a little bit. I spent some time in, in San Francisco, uh, did a road trip for a couple months in my van, came back. And then as the pages turned for 97, from 96 to 97, 
I eventually wound up with a magazine called Mondo 2000. And they had some new digs that they were going to run their operation out of. And it was uh, a warehouse in North Berkeley on what they call the flats. And at that time, Mondo had been in this very large two bedroom, not two bedroom, um, two story, multiple bedrooms, two story house in the hills of Berkeley um, with a garden. And, you know, it was a very, it was almost quasi Victorian. That's how the, uh, that's how the set and the setting were. But then they had to move. And so I, I was helping, I kind of hooked up with them. I'd met the publisher um, through my girlfriend at the time. And we had gone to uh, Timothy Leary's memorial in San Francisco, which was a very interesting event. Uh, it was at Grace Cathedral and John Perry Barlow was there. And he gave the uh, opening speech, salutation, memoriam to Leary. And I remember when he started, the place was packed. Uh, when he started and began to speak into the microphone, there was just this incredible feedback that shot through the cathedral space and everybody was like whoa did you check that out and they were able to tame the feedback and uh the proceedings went on robert anton wilson was there i would see anton wilson around at certain events he's part of that story he's part of the chaos magic story of the bay area anyway um after the memorial uh we went out to dinner and we met the publisher of mondo 2000 and her boyfriend partner and we had sushi and i remember getting her her card and then when i came back from my uh tour of the southern part of the united states 96 my van I stayed kind of out on the streets for as long as I could doing tarot because that's what I was doing. But the, the weather was getting colder and colder. So um, Fishman's Wharf was getting to be less and less of a kind of a storefront. So I, I gave the publisher a call and I said, hey, do you need any help with your magazine? And she said, well, why don't you come by and we'll talk. And so we had a talk and I kind of jumped in and helped. And then all of a sudden they're moving. Right? So this was probably early November. And then by the time the uh, holidays come around, they're having to move out of this space. This big two-story kind of Victorian lair that, that Mondo 2000 was hatched out of. So I helped them move, and then they moved to this, this warehouse. And it was a real drastic change in scenery and vibe. I mean, the warehouse was very utilitarian. There wasn't anything really fancy about it at all. 
um, but there was office space that wasn't being used. And so the magazine was given a pretty good deal to kind of set up shop there. Uh, but it was literally like a fall from grace, right? It was like just coming down the mountain. Not for me, but for the people that were part of the magazine. For me, it was just, well, here we are. So through the move, I'm like, well, you know, I have an office here. Why don't I just sleep here? And so that's what I did. I started sleeping there and nobody really said anything. And then um, Richard, who we'll, I'll introduce you to here in a minute. Um, Richard knew that I was sleeping there and he, and his wife um, wasn't into it because I also had a dog. But Richard liked the idea. Like Richard likes nomads and he likes uh, spiritual anarchists. He likes magicians. Um, he likes crazy holy men. And I think he kind of saw me in that vein. So he made a case to his wife to let me stay there because I'm playing the role of a night watchman. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of true right in some ways is kind of true so i stayed there for two years and um i got to know richard very well over that time and still have over the course of the years in the warehouse house books and richard had a, a publishing company called uh north atlantic books nab and it really was an outgrowth of his and his wife's interests in things like botany, healing, plant medicine, shamanism, martial arts, uh, poetry, uh, indigenous cultures and magic. They had a pretty eclectic uh, catalog. But they even had a book on judo by Vladimir Putin, which I thought was really interesting. It's like, wow, you got a Putin judo book here? And they also had some really, really interesting books in terms of um, content that, that I could relate to. Uh, they published a couple of um, Elias Lonsdale's uh, books on astrology, The Inner Degrees. Um, I think they had Gabriel Cousins books, which were pretty popular. Anyway, you kind of get the gist of the catalog. And it was really an outgrowth of their interests, which were quite eclectic, to say the least. And keep in mind, this is Berkeley. And Berkeley was the the was ground zero for leftist politics. Ber Berkeley was where the, you know, the, the, the great like student protests and speeches were given in the sixties, Mario Savio giving his, you know, kind of archetypal protest speech of the nineties. It's a, that's where it all starts. It's all there in Berkeley, right? So Berkeley is not 
what would be a more Berkeley is not like Pleasanton in California. Pleasanton, like at that time, almost a cow town, or San Jose, where I grew up, kind of a cow town, or going further out into the Central Valley. Berkeley was was, was about as far away from those places as Berkeley is from Paris, just from the ideological perspective. So the fallout of the 60s is that the the liberals who were educated at Berkeley during that time stayed there, right? For the most part, they stayed there because that area is actually quite nice. It's not as cold as San Francisco, although it does get a little cool. It's not as hot as it is over on um, the other side of the hills when you when you get into uh, Contra Costa County. So it's this interesting kind of interzone between the frigid cold of the San Francisco summers and the blistering heat of the Contra Costa County summers, right? And it's very eclectic and uh, very international, lots of ethnic cuisine. That was one of the great things about Berkeley. You could always get Thai food or Malaysian food or Indian food or whatever. It was all there. Like Berkeley was this international village and microcosm. So it was this place where this idea of cultural um, diversity kind of took place without people making sure that it took place. Like there weren't mandates. Well, we need to have, we need to have another Pakistani restaurant. It wasn't like that. It just kind of happened, right? So it was this um, ideologically and culturally diverse wonderland. And that's where North Atlantic books and people like Richard and Lindy could really thrive in this fertile ground, right? So they were very, very successful with their publishing company. Um, they turned it into um, a nonprofit and it helped them actually get a foothold in the publishing world. And they, you know, they didn't, they didn't screw anybody. They didn't cheat anybody. Um, yes, I know. And, you know, they had, they had to have board meetings with the nonprofit and they had to give money away. And they, I mean, and their nonprofit status would always come up for review and they had to prove that they were eligible for that nonprofit status, which they did over the course of their time there. So it wasn't like there was some fly-by-night nonprofit. And everything was well and good until what? What do you have to say? You have a lot to say today. All right. I think people know how you feel. Well. So everything was well and good until um, Lindy and Richard decided that they wanted to move. And uh, they wanted to move to, they wanted to move to Maine 
because they had some experiences in Maine and it was a place that they'd spent some time in and, you know, they really liked it there. And I think they had a place that they would go to in the summertime, which I'd been to, by the way. And then they decided to make a full-time go of it. So they decided to move to Maine. And as, as they distanced themselves from their publishing company, physically, in a lot of ways, they were also distancing themselves from their publishing company metaphysically. And they would come back, and it's all in the article I'm about to show you. They would come back a couple times a year or a couple months out of the year and, you know, wrap their hands around what was going on, go to meetings, talk about publishing schedules, books, et cetera, et cetera. And then they realized that that was um, getting harder and harder to do. So Richard decided that he was going to step down as the head of the board for the nonprofit, and he was going to appoint one of his employees. And with having something that's nonprofit status, you can't sell it, right? You have to um, essentially leave it for, for the employees to take over. And there are ways around having to do that. I think the legal term for it is S-Corp. But that's not what they did. So what happened as a result of this was the changing of the guard. And it was not good. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going I, I, I put together the backstory. I hope I painted a picture of where, where, where this place kind of sprouted up, my relationship to it in Richard, um, and then what happens next. So I got a phone call from Richard yesterday, and I, I had known about this for a while. I think I even had, apparently I'd mentioned it on my show because I, um, my commentary is part of the subtitle for this series of um, posts that Richard has put together on Substack, it's called um, Opera, Jupiter, and Jovian Bricolage. And I had known about Richard's battle um, with what had happened to his publishing company. I've known about it for a while now. And it's one of those things when you look at it from a distance, you can just see um, the quote-unquote deep injustice that is being done and perpetrated to another person. Now, there's always two sides of a story, and there's three sides of the story, right? And I would say, by and large, that if Richard is guilty of anything, he's guilty of trust, of having too much trust and believing that the same ideals and values that were shared by he and his wife and the people that helped build NAB 
were the same values that would be inherited by the successors. And that was completely wrong. He had misread and misjudged the room, the tide, and the time. So I'm going to read a little bit of this. Um, it's a very long post. And I'm going to try to condense it a little bit as we go through it. Richard is a phenomenal wordsmith and um and I would say he's a he's a he's a big mind, a great writer, and he's able to sample so many different uh influences and um cultural and historical touch points in his writing that it becomes quite dense. And you have to really read through it, right? So I'm going to read a little bit of it, and then I'm going to kind of skip ahead. And I'm, I might even do a part two tomorrow, because this is a really interesting cultural phenomenon that we're experiencing. The incident. So he posted this um, yesterday. The incident. I know. I experienced cancel culture directly when Lindy's and my five decades long publishing company was lost. This was a big story for me. It will always be a big story lifetimes from now. It would have to be when you and your partner work for 55 years to create an archive and then watch it get dismantled seemingly without respect and remorse. It is a life defining lesion. This is not a simple story either. So I want to confine my telling of it here to its cancel culture implications in my own depression. To my mind, social justice has been widely appropriated as a cover for forms of activity having little to do with the marginalized people it purports to serve or reversing systemic racism. It is, however, an effective strategic use. Keep in mind, Richard is a social and intellectual liberal with, I would say, certainly more left than right leanings. Lindy is definitely in that camp. Lindy, and I like Lindy. Um, Lindy always kind of struck this pose of being the consummate white progressive liberal from a feminine perspective. But I like Lindy. Just because somebody's like that doesn't mean you don't have to like the person. You may not always agree with them, but I like Lindy. I still like Lindy and I like Richard and Richard and I don't always agree as you'll see. My incident meshes with similar ones involving college professors, publishing executives, journals, and blue collar managers. What you will read is my subjective account of a complex event, but has many facets. Readers should seek the counter narrative, draw their own conclusions. In fact, I hope that some folks audit me on this. Everyone is a hero in their own story. What am I missing? 
Am I an innocent victim or did I commit crimes to which I am not owning up or don't recognize from entitled myopia? So Richard is still hanging out thinking maybe somewhere along the way I, I missed the plot. I admire the humility. I respect the humility. But in this situation, when you're dealing with these forces, um, that kind of circumspection is a big, fat luxury. There is always a counter-narrative. We are always missing something. That's how we grow. I would say to a certain extent. I would say to a certain extent. We have we have to you know figure out where our blind spots are. But I digress. Everything I say henceforth in the Buddhist sense, view, or as playwright Arthur Miller vernacularized, the view of the bridge. It is my bridge, my view, and there are as many bridges as there are people and views. Lindy and I began our publishing modestly and inadvertently as sophomores at Amherst and Smith College in 1964. A detailed account appears in my book. New Moon, a coming of age tale. Initially, our journal, Io, named after the inner moon of Jupiter, was a medley of literature in the occult. Then in 1967, while we were newly married and living in Ann Arbor, we assembled an alchemy-themed issue based on the work of our mentor at the time, poet Robert Kelly. The alchemy issue came out at the start of the first counterculture and took off at once. Getting recognition in the Canadian Whole Earth Almanac, that expanded our subscriber and bookstore base and making it possible to keep publishing without the college funds that launched us curating issues on diverse topics, combining ethnography, myth, literature. We put out 23 issues in 11 years, turning an annual into an irregular as libraries recataloged us. Themes included ethnoastronomy, oceanology, um, dreams, baseball, four earth geography booklets, mind, memory, psyche, biopoesis, bio, bio, bio Vermont, and two Olson Melville source books. During those 10 years, I went to graduate school in Michigan in anthropology, Lindy in English. I did ethnographic field work with fishermen in down East Maine. And we both taught at the University of Maine in Portland and Goddard College in Vermont. In 1974, sponsored by the Vermont Council, Arts Council, rather, um, we applied to a new national endowment for the arts program for publishing. We named our press North Atlantic Books, partly for regionality, five straight years then in counting in Maine and Vermont, and partly in acknowledgement of Ed Dorn's epic poem, North Atlantic Turban. The turban is only movement, the current of the Atlantic swirl, continents break before it, they pull apart. That was our intent, a swirl beyond history, a turban of truth. For its first few years, the press was purely literary, mostly poetry and grant supported. We published books solely on arts endowment grants, Authors included Diane DePrima, Bernadette Mayer, Garrett Lansing, Theodore Enslin, Bobby Bird, and Robert Kelly. In 1977, Lindy and I left Vermont and teaching careers, moved to the San Francisco Bay Area without jobs and two young kids. Publishing became a luxury as we tried to earn a living through the first IO anthology, Baseball, I Gave You All the Best Years of My Life, a literary and cultural collection. I co-edited with University of Delaware professor Kevin Corain, was such a success in 1978 that we sold it to Doubleday where it became baseball diamonds and bought six months Bay Area survival after unemployment checks ran out. 
So this is about the start of North Atlantic Books. In 1980, we incorporated North Atlantic Books as a nonprofit in order to continue getting arts endowment grants without a fiscal agent taking 30%. Because of technical requirements too picky into detail, we created an anthropological society and donated the press to it. Nonprofit status got us a quick three-year grant for multicultural distribution under sponsorship of a novelist, of novelist Ishmael Reed. He lives in the Bay Area. That included a half salary for me and bought some more time while I continued to look for an interdisciplinary college teaching job I never found. As a side note, Ishmael Reed happens to be black. Okay. So it's one of the first authors they sponsored. Three years after we received nonprofit status, our arts grants dried up. But writing Planet Medicine put me in the heart of the alternative medicine world. Holistic health and psychospiritual modalities gradually replaced avant-garde literature. Many of the books came naturally from my taking courses and trainings and recruiting my teachers. With my book advances and being the one who stayed home for the kids, returned for, from school, I had lots of time. I studied homeopathy, bioenergetics, uh, shiatsu, lomi, Jungian dream analysis, rebirthing, brema, craniosacral therapy, polarity, and Feldenkrais. I found authors in all of them, a day-long intensive in body-mind centering with Bonnie Bainbridge-Cohen and three weekend intensives and continuum micro-movements with uh, Emily Conrad helped me build somatics lists because I not only learned the systems firsthand, but met practitioners of various modalities taking master classes. Our initial books and planet medicine itself led to other authors, several of them founders of their own systems. These led to other authors and systems along with their students, colleagues, and friends. My Tai Chi classes similarly led to practitioners and teachers. Cheng Man Chen, Benjamin Pang Yang Lo, Paul Pitchford, Terry Dobson, Peter Ralston, Wendy Palmer, Richard Strozzi Hepler, Vera Almieta, Nestor Caporetta. Holistic health and martial arts opened our press to a wide range of modalities that synergized energy, medicine, shamanism, ethnobotany, movement, and dance. In a different arc, my writing, The Night Sky, put me in touch with amateur exobiologist Richard Hoagland. His book, The Monuments of Mars, A City on the Edge of Forever, became our first bestseller and extended our spectrum to forbidden archaeology, sacred geometry, critiques of science, and science fiction. For the next 13 years or so in Berkeley, Lindy and I built North Atlantic into a trade publishing company as we became a respected mind-body imprint as well as one of the leading publishers in English of books of internal martial arts and somatics. We innovated lists on ayahuasca, food as consciousness, healing trauma, and dozens of other topics ranging from Peruvian whistling jug to Appalachian dance and Quonset huts on the river sticks. A compilation of sat satirical bomb shelter designs. I guess that was the Quonset Um, These arose out of interconnected networks leading back to our original literary world which itself had a shamanic and mythic component in my studies. Uh, Paul Pitcher, author of Healing with Whole Foods, our second bestseller, was my initial Berkeley Tai Chi diet and meditation teacher. Amid a growing number of New Age and uh, mind-body-spirit presses, none made the particular synthesis we did of martial arts, alternative medicine, the occult, anthropology, and avant-garde literature it was a rich juncture, and it gave us a high standing in an industry in which we had to compete for authors with well-funded commercial houses. 
During those 13 years of exploration and expansion, Lindy and I ran the entire operation except for book design. Our kids even packed books and helped cart them to the post office after school. For production, we paid a freelance designer, Paula Morrison, initially the girlfriend of one of our Tai Chi authors. Lindy did most of the editing until we added a freelance editor, Kathy Glass. So this is really a more detailed narrative of the story that I kind of touched on at the beginning. So he's giving you um, a look behind the scenes, right? Of the eclectic nature of North Atlantic books. They got an office. I remember they got an office in downtown Berkeley. Been there a couple of times. Um, so they were like rising as a publishing company. During the next 17 years, we built a company expanding the list in quantity and range. It took four turns in six years to assemble a staff of 15, another six plus three more turns, and three office moves and a switch of a distributor from Publishers Group West to Random House to establish ourselves as a mind, body, spirit imprint on par with mainstream competitors. During the transformation, we put out 60, 70, then 80 new titles a year. Graphic novels, esoteric novels, Zen philosophy, translations of the Dalai Lama, high school football, contrarian AIDS, medicinal herbs, uh, prenatal memories, gay tantra, esoteric anatomy, channeling, healing, PTSD, astral travel, and a best-selling children's book, Walter the Farting Dog, as well as a wide spectrum of alternative medicine, martial arts, body work, shamanism, ethnopharmacology, spirit walking, and new wave literature. Yeah, I know. So I'm going to move forward here. Between 1993, when Lindy joined me, and 2010, when she retired, we employed close to 400 people, maxing at 24 at any one time with a wide range of ages, ethnicities, races, gender orientations, and temperaments, far more women than men. We oversaw romances, feuds, emotional collapses, an arsonist, a kleptomaniac, a Swedish fashion model, two rock musicians, an unemployment scammer, a girlfriend of an Oakland Raiders lineman, he sent her flowers at work, a late sleeper who came in pajamas, and a few sacred office practitioners. We hired our Czech UPS driver to work in the warehouse. We ended up in a fistfight with another employee, the singer for a local punk rock band. One woman threw a desk computer over a balcony at her estranged boyfriend waving a gun. Another guy had an affair with his otherwise gay female supervisor. And she broke up with him, quit. At the door, he turned with a parting call. This is a coven of witches. Another departing male dubbed it a gynocracy. Uh, so he, again, just really gets into the diversity, right? He's just building a case here of the business, the diversity of the work staff and the diversity of the publications. I'm gonna move forward here. Lindy and I began spending more and more time in Maine. Finally moving there in 2014, we returned to the Bay for a month or two each winter on our home exchanges. Our accountant and attorney, both board members, urged me to appoint someone else publisher. The young man I chose brought into play a social justice agenda. 
to which most of Lindy's and my milieu had pledged fealty since our youth. That's an important, it's one of the most important sentences in this entire long, detailed, dense discourse. The young man I chose brought into play a social justice agenda to which most of Lindy's and my milieu had pledged fealty since our youth. With our assent, he began to recruit a new, more racially and politically diverse board. Folks he met in local gardening circles, though who had at best peripheral or superficial affinity with our books and understanding of the complexity of the weave, it didn't seem to matter. Lindy and I had long thought of the board as an artifact rather than what it was, the legal repository of the company. We blended with our protege's liberation theology. He didn't stay around long. The staff also gravitated towards social justice as a more amenable rubric than Lindy's and my hard to bundle arcana, identity politics and critiques of white privilege and neocolonialism trended with the academic and intellectual bias of many of their peers. About that time, a 30-year author of alternative medicine books, a homeopath and acupuncturist, was accused by a patient of inappropriate touching. The guy said he was set up by the pharmaceutical industry. The resulting brouhaha made the local papers. To this day, almost seven years later, so far as I know, the case has never gone to court and the author is still practicing. He Now, he, he corrects himself with that. The issues around the event are far more tangled than my description, but given the trajectory of this book, I will leave it here. Since making this post, I've been told that this author was more recently tried, convicted of improper touching two patients, whoops, two patients, and sent to jail. Whether it was set up as an issue more pertinent to the next chapter. His being in jail relates back to my immediately previous Wetico post. It doesn't affect my argument. It just makes me sad for him in our unfinished world. Several other of our authors had been accused of sexual misconduct through the years, mostly along the lines of unwanted advances. I never considered it our place to act as their judge and jury. It was a slippery slope. Some of the great works of Western literature were written by people with similar or far worse peccadilloes. Carry this yardstick over to the rock and rap world, and by citing inappropriate touching and unwanted advances, you can pretty much wipe out the albums and CDs of the last century. Yet all of the accused books were put out of print. The author's advance for his next book was eaten. The annual cost to the press was in the range of a full annual salary. But that wasn't the whole price because sexual impropriety wasn't the lone issue. The victim or victimizer, depending on your perspective, was a pediatrician as well, a practitioner of alternative medicine. He had written about the relative merits and risks of each common vaccine. His vax relativism did not sit well with the staff. As reconstituted, they didn't care all that much about energy medicine. It wasn't a part of their daily lives. Plus, like months named Thermidor and Fructidor during the French Revolution, Keep, put a pin on that. I've been talking about the French Revolution for about a week now. And I, and I did a big show on it Sunday night. 
just pin it. And that came up starting on Monday of last week when I was on, quite frankly, and he brought up the change into the calendar, which is what they wanted to do during the French Revolution. This is what Richard is citing here. So we're in, we're in that vector now, right? To me, that shows us we're in that vector. Words like alchemical, spiritual, liminal, shamanic, even native arts and sciences could be reinvented and repurposed. After I was finally removed, North Atlantic canceled a genre-creating book I acquired on spirit marriage near the end of my tenure. Though they kept the author on hold for more than a year, she told me. I pinged the dude when I didn't get a contract. He said, sorry, we changed our mind. I asked why. He said, the staff doesn't believe in spirits. And they think polyamory is immoral. What the fuck? They said my book was immoral because I was advocating sex with spirits they don't believe in. The irony is that they're not Christians. That would be a Christian thing, wouldn't it? These people are, are far from being Christians. The bigger th There was a bigger issue for me. I'd fallen into a clinical depression. I was hanging out with him during that time. A little bit. Paid him a visit. That was hard. Um, I'm going to skip this part. By the way, he doesn't like Trump. But he's waking up now. I mean, he's waking up because of what happened to his, his company. But there are another number of other posts here on his Substack where he talks about what's happening in academia. And I might actually look at a couple of those tomorrow. It's part of a process, right? This is, and again, I, I just want to state this unequivocally. I really like Richard. And again, I don't always agree with Richard. He doesn't always agree, with, but I really like Richard. And you can see that he's emblematic he and his peers, and you'll and when I go through some of those posts on what's going on with universities and what's happening with curriculum and faculty, and essentially, you know, um, reordering the entire idea and notion of what it's like to go to a you know college of you know higher learning. And really what it boils down to now is their centers for indoctrination and the comments of other uh, professors, uh, academicians show that they too now are witnessing this. They're watching these institutions that they built, whether it's a, a department at a university or a publishing company. They're watching them being ransacked and they're watching the wholesale overthrow of their life's work. And these are people who are on the socially and ideologically progressive liberal side of the spectrum. Because they're done, right? They've already burned their way through middle America. They've already burned their way through the middle class. Like that, that part of the sea, that, that part of the advance on American culture, whatever that is, 
in a brief 200 year history, Western culture, that part of their advance on this thing that we're occupying is done, right? They've moved on. This is the world that they are now like a plague of locusts about to devour. And to a large extent, the people who have built these institutions, these systems, these companies, publishing houses, um, to a large extent, they despised the so-called right. They, they, they despised so-called conservatism. Although I will give Richard um, a bit of leeway because he's hung out with me over the years. <laughs> and now they're like, well, you know, who's here for us? Right? Who's here for us as now they're coming for our cultural imprints, the things that we thought were building a better world, the things that in our idea of diversity in multicultural assemblage, that this would be two, three, four steps closer to some kind of paradise, right? And that everybody would have a seat at the table as long as their ideas weren't too radical on the right. I'm gonna I'm gonna continue to read this here. Give me one second. Um, California was the ultimate fool's gold, though it took much of uh, half a lifetime to figure that out. By 2014, gourmet ghetto appreciation added up to community, less confetti, and fill. That's when we moved to Maine. We came back to a very different situation in 2019. Young people, and we ourselves were young for a very long time, think they could pull off anything that their elders can and improve on prove on it, override their endemic blind spots and limitations. I felt as though they were operating on the premise that Lindy's, in my curation, hid white theft, privilege, and nepotism, and that they could come up with just as good books with racial and sexual diversity, mainly by Googling. I was trying to transition the press effectively, and I had a bit of Stockholm syndrome. Throughout my childhood and youth, I found it safer to play wimp and doofus than to let authorities know the extent of my apostasy. I couldn't hide from my mother or a pedophile counselor at Camp Swago, but the tendency was as instinctive as a snail carrying a shell. Plus, I did eventually escape both of them, the former by whooping cough, the latter by growing up. Submission and obeisance were no longer possible, and I was too old to hide who I was. I was graded poorly, so now he's in a struggle session. This is what's going on. Now he's in either a, a virtual or face-to-face -face struggle session with the people that are accusing him of crimes. They're, they're accusing him of culture crimes. 
I was graded poorly for using the meme tar baby for interrupting a woman while she was talking for name dropping black authors and citing transsexual themes. Lindy and I innovated years earlier. All redeemed racism, false entitlement, unearned license. <laughs> in this new world, the most recent hire on his or her or their first day in the building had as much claim to relevance as me. They had it by applying a measure that decreed my career and generation blind to the power structures behind it. It didn't matter that the tar baby was African-American generated and was black because it was made out of tar. I wanted North Atlantic to survive and thrive. Lindy and I had hired enough of the staff to consider them our people. So this is, again, like more... Um, More, more bricks, right? More bricks to buttress his position. And I, you know, and I, and I get it, right? Like he's trying to work this out. He's trying to like, what are we guilty of? What, what are we guilty of? We, we, we built this company and we built this catalog of books that we believed were interesting and eclectic right i'm gonna keep going here uh a world launched in new york city in colorado prep schools and ivy league colleges in a 1960s alchemy salon through initiations by tarot cards push hands uh, facial palpation or reading was being rejected by its latter-day stewards. It took Lindy and me most of a lifetime from our late teens well into our 70s to create a living archive of personal transformation and radical healing and liminal realms to blend indigenous arts and sciences with futuristic paradigms. But we was old, they was young. As Chip Taylor put it in the London sessions 2008, we was wrong and they was right. And somebody's got to pay. If I'm not mistaken, Chip Taylor is John Voigt's brother. I was told I had unfairly received an education that others hadn't. The word reparation was used. I hadn't considered that times would change such that reparation would be required, let alone by a grandchild of Polish-German Jews from whom strangers took possessions, businesses, art, children, dignity, and the right to live a generation or two ago. My pedigree as a cross-cultural author and publisher from an Ivy League college with a liberal arts education and anthropology PhD served me about as well as Sari, a Jewish music musician in the 1939 Germany, or a professor trying to explain Confucian philosophy in a class of dialectics to Mao's Red Guards. So he's really on a cross here, right? As an anti-Zionist and supporter and colleague of real-life Palestinians, I never would have thought that a friend and confidant would turn against me like a capo in a death camp to affirm his solidarity with the woke. When I experienced that, I felt like a piece of meat. It wasn't crystal knocked, but a glimmer of the moment when your equally Jewish neighbor says in front of the Reich, I love the guy, but... You don't hear it because you don't believe it's possible. 
try it out. Imagine someone you totally trust turning against you at a critical moment of your life. He gets into this piece. Sherry Mitchell, my First Nations author, later said, now you know what it feels like to have your identity and land stolen. I mean, that's what they would do in the Soviet Union. They would put you, put you into these interrogations and these struggle sessions, and they would try to get you to um, admit to the crimes that you committed against the state. And then what they would do is they would force people from your family to rat on you, right? And to make these um, confessions that you would, you were indeed guilty of the crimes of which you were being committed. That's exactly what he was going through. Although it's doubtful that the person that sold him out, which I don't know anything about, um, was was um, actively sought out and said, look, if you don't do this, we're going to ruin you. But I think intuitively they knew that. That's my sense. Other longtime friends and staff, hip, compassionate people, abandoned me in fear of being dubbed racist or in their wish to prove woke. Not easy. Again, more buttressing. He's sourcing um, Native people, Dick Gregory, uh, walking in marches, right? And more, 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 more sourcing. There's, there's a lot of sourcing in this piece. And I don't think it's out of place. Because in as much as it's a way for Richard to illustrate the eclectic background of people and works that he pulled from. It's also, I think for him, a cathartic historical record of his experience with his publishing company. So I don't, I don't, you know, I don't blame him for coming back over the course of this piece to try to not just build his case, but kind of see this in a kind of a linear um, historical narrative for his life and his wife's life. They would have sentenced me to the firing squad or gas chamber if they had had the power. That wasn't an option, but it was the energy I felt. And if you heard the language used against me in person, which I didn't in my myopia, you would have been just as stunned and felt just as unreal. No one is immune to this, however radical and true to the cause. No artist, no intellectual, no spiritual seeker, no first responder, no herbalist or healer. Once again, I remind you, there must be a counter narrative. There has to be. How else to explain this behavior? Human beings don't act this way unless they are justified. It's called programming. It's called mind control. It's called uh, agitprop. That's the counter-narrative. My age was cited, but even with my depression, it was irrelevant. I was at the height of my career with a lifelong network of contacts and a steady stream of books. All that went to inner traditions. That's who he's working with now. 
So now he's got a little bit of support here. Uh, who Sperling comes to his rescue and he starts to move a lot of titles into inner traditions. So something good eventually comes out of this for Richard, but he winds up, um, he winds up losing his business and his legacy. And the, the, uh, the part here that is really, and it's kind of buried in here. Um, in a time I have come to recognize a tactic to which my progressive roots and habits unnerve me. It has become widespread in Western culture, elitist white accusers, pretending to renounce their racial privileges as a strategy for extending white power. I think it's a strategy to fucking stay alive. Removal or marginalization, marginalization of long functional members from organizations and universities by social justice inquisitions have become commonplace. The methods are usually the same. <laughs> Targets are accused of racism, sexual misconduct, or abuse and disrespect. If they haven't committed anything overtly, no problem. Everyone has baggage. Just do a deep dive and find it. Fools don't even have uh, fools don't even have to have had committed. Whoops, um, sorry. Fools don't even have to have committed the likeness of a crime or gotten a legal warning. All someone has to do is point a finger and say, he or she triggered me. And bang, they're dead. Who needs a gun? But if the woke have access to a gun, usually metaphorical or psychic, they may try to use it. The dead are easier and cheaper to dispose of than the living. In Babel, progressive ideologies like feminism, social justice, and critical race theory get turned into instruments of oppression and control. Language police twist any incipient belief or slip of the tongue into accusations of privilege and revanchism. While feigning diversity and multiculturalism, culturally vanilla imposters, consumer politicos, and uninitiated imitators infiltrate formerly edgy organizations like a termite infestation. They hollow out the structure while disposing of anyone they deem inconvenient, unworthy, or more informed than they are. They are they, they, then they pad their nests virtue signaling for cover. It's a racket from time immemorial. My sense is that wokeness armed with cancel culture removes the need for any other ethics, compassion, respect, fairness, virtue, decency, or goodwill. But I don't think it can bring real reparation or understanding. So this is where I come into the story. On his show, Astrology for the Now Age, Post Robert Phoenix declaimed in 2020, looking back in the coup stage at North Atlantic, it seems more than just random. And the result of some social trend, Grossinger was targeted and marked in true revolutionary fashion. They stole his press for the current siege. He was chosen to have his company taken from it as a prize for the cultural revolution and to use NAB to publish Marxist polemics wrapped in racial theory and identity politics. It's not about being, uh, not about race or being woke. It's about the wholesale dismantling of the West. He and I don't exactly have the same politics or worldview, but he touches on the big picture through the glass darkly. And I remember talking about this and I talked about it to Richard um, and I talked about it, maybe I talked about it on my show. And 
looking back on what I said, I do think in a lot of ways, it's a product of a rising tide. Like what happened to his company is the product of a rising red tide. And once the um, boulder started rolling downhill, all of a sudden, it got real personal. All of a sudden, it was cultural. And I've talked about literally the the communist um hardcore intelligentsia that is based out of Oakland and Berkeley experiencing them firsthand that's in the background of all this right that is in the background and at some point did his company become a pelt on the belt? My sense is yes. What starts as a rising tide became emblematic of something much, much deeper. Now, the title here is really important because this is exactly what Richard experienced. I think I may follow up tomorrow on one of his pieces on um, what's taking place in academia. This is what the left is experiencing. They're coming for them now. The old left. They're coming for the old left now. If the old left were really smart, really, really smart, they'd start to make alliances with people that are more to the right if they were really smart, they would understand that they do have some um, spiritual allies in this world. And maybe this might be one of those strange kind of twists of the screw that allows um, a new type of healing to take place in a lot of ways. I'm going to, I'm going to extend this for 30 minutes because I don't really want to end it yet. I may not be on for another 30 minutes, but I'm not sure I'm finished with um, everything that I want to say. And we're running up against the clock. So I may only talk for another four or five minutes or 10 minutes at that. But I think this is, you know, you have people like Jimmy Dore. Jimmy Dore used to be on the Young Turks who have swallowed cancel culture hook, line, and sinker. Now, Jimmy Dore hasn't completely snorted the red pill, but he's pretty close. He's done one line. He still thinks that government can provide medicine. I just, to me, that's just mind blowing. The people that push the thing that made you really, really ill, which you stopped participating in, are the people that were mandating that thing. Do you think that the very same people can? put together a better program for the general public and socialized medicine. He's not quite there yet, but he's getting closer. So you're starting to see this happen, right? These, these, these heads 
on the left are kind of they're starting to explode a little bit. And and I and I would think that you know with this awareness that um that there's been this radical appropriation of their ideals and ideology being weaponized and used against them that they would make a hard turn to the right but and this is what richard runs into inside of his uh, essays is that a lot of them have severe TDS. And it, it, it's really the, it's a great mind fuck. I had to use, I had to use the word, but I used it in, in a sense that it made sense, right? It, was, it wasn't just a, a hard exclamation point. Um, it's cognitive dissonance at its finest, right? So if you're on the left, and they're, you know, they're they're burning down literally, figuratively burning down your business. What are you going to do? Your your allies are, you, they're going to hate. Not me. I don't know you, right? Yeah, I don't know him. Oh, but oh, by the way, Black Lives Matter. Um. Where could they go? They could go to the right. But when they go to the right, what do they run into? They run into this oversized golem of Trump. And they're like, ah, right? Like, like the oversized golem of Trump is the gatekeeper for potential allies. So now they're caught. You know, they're caught in this place where they know that everything that they believed in has been hijacked and has been taken from them. But the one group that they may seek um, safer shelter and harbor with is still ideologically offensive to them. So they're, they're kind of stuck, right? They're kind of stuck in this no man's land where they know they've been wronged. They're looking back on their life work. And for some of these people, it's in flames. Or in Richard's case, they pulped those books. The ones that they didn't want to keep, they pulped them. They're, they're never going to be reprinted or sold or seen again. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of what happened in the library at Alexandria. It, it, it happened during the French Revolution where they went through the palace and they burned all these, they, they burned so many fucking books during the French revolution. Like tomes of knowledge we'll never see. That's what they're doing. That's what they did. Done. Gone. Erasing, canceling, deleting. This is French revolution stuff right here. This, this is exactly why I've been feeling the French Revolution lately. But they're, they're in a tough spot. And it's all happening to them too, right? When astrologically, here comes Pluto in Aquarius, you know, getting ready to oppose Pluto and Leo, which is really the celestial signature of the boomers. 
boy, that's a, that is the potential to be a real cosmic reckoning. Real, and they're older, right? They're in their 70s, mid 70s, late 70s. You know, the first boomers show up in what, really around 43, 42, 43. So they're like 79, 80. Jeff Beck, born 1942. That's where we are now. And it's going to be very interesting to see how this unfolds. Because the fires haven't stopped burning. Even though on the streets of America in 2020, you know, they've been extinguished. But those ideological fires have not stopped burning. And um, we're here for you. Casey need us. And I wouldn't even call myself a person on the right. A lot of times the people on the right just, man, they lose the plot too. Oh, we just, we just need a better, more conservative government. That's what we need. And yeah, I mean, from that perspective, it would make more sense. But they don't know how to, they don't know how to play the game. They just don't know how to play the game. And they're 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 in the ring, you know, with uh, a seasoned street fighter, and they got one hand tied behind their back. Good luck with that. All right, um, I'm out of here. So, a very interesting piece. Um, I'll actually leave a link today to uh, Richard's blog if you want to read it and um, read some of the other posts that he has on his website, on, on Substack. And I don't know, maybe I'll cover another one tomorrow or maybe I'll change, change the subject. I'll see how I feel. All right, thanks for being here. Use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart to say what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix and uh, bye for now.